0: Growing up, and maybe even now in your life, we've all had heroes, right? When I was young in preaching, I had uh, guys that I looked up to, and there were even times in my ministry where I probably sounded more like them than I sounded like myself because I wanted to emulate them and emulate what they did. When I was young, Um, I was probably like a lot of peers my age, and I wanted to be like, come on, be like Mike, Michael Jordan. In fact, embarrassingly, um, when I was young and playing basketball, I talked my parents into getting me a knee brace for a knee injury that I did not have, (laughs) because that's what Michael Jordan did. And I do think I practiced playing basketball with my tongue stuck out. Um, As well, until I had coaches in middle school that told me to stick that tongue back in your mouth, boy. Um, The only problem with wanting to be like Mike is that, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, and maybe still, but I know until recently, had the highest vertical jump of any uh, basketball player ever. And I did not have the highest vertical jump of any basketball player ever. Uh, He had large hands and athletic abilities that, I just didn't have. So I couldn't be like Mike as much as I wanted to. I couldn't be like Mike. And, and there came a sense as, you know, back then there wasn't social media. But one of the things that kind of came out over the years is this question of, do you really want to be like Michael Jordan in every aspect of your life? Do you want to be like him in the gambling and the drinking and the other stuff that he got into? Maybe he wasn't a very good Hero in all ways. Maybe if you were looking to be a good basketball player, there were things there that you might want to emulate. You know, the Bible. The Bible calls us at times to look to people, to look to heroes. In Hebrews 12 and, and all over in other parts of the scripture, the Bible calls us to look to Jesus, the ultimate hero. And, and with him, we can try to emulate everything that he did, and that's what we're called to do in Scripture. We're called to look to Jesus as a hero. But if you're familiar with the word, you know, in Hebrews 11. That's before Hebrews 12. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us, hey, look to all these people, emulate these people, and there's this long list of what we call the heroes of the faith. And even at the end of that list, it said, oh, you know, if there were time, there are many, many more. But in that list, you have people like Moses, you have people like Abraham, you have people like Sarah, Enoch, Rahab. That the Bible calls us to look to look to them. How do we do that? Now, certainly, if we were to if I were to preach on Hebrews 11, the goal would not be for you to come in carrying a staff so that you could be like Moses. That's not what the Bible is calling us to certainly, certainly, hopefully what you would not do is that you would come in here and start lying if you're married and saying that your wife was your sister like Abraham did. What the Bible is calling us to is not looking at these men and women themselves, but looking beyond them and looking to what God is doing in and through their lives so that we can trust the God that they serve. And the Bible calls us to that, and we need this at times in our lives. We need examples. One of the things that uh, happens very often uh, when I'm counseling folks is that sometimes people will come in and they're just uh, stricken with anxiety, stricken with worry. And one of the things that I will often say to them is I, if they're sitting in the chair in my office, I'll say, Hey, you know what the Bible says about worry, don't you, and anxiety? And, and many times they may say, No, I don't know what the Bible says about worry and anxiety. I say, Well, the Bible says be anxious for nothing. And I just sit there, and you see the doom come over their face. How can I not be anxious? How can I not worry? And thankfully, the Bible. Jesus, as he was talking about not being anxious and not worrying, he didn't just leave us there, did he? He said, "Look at the flowers in the field. Look at the birds in the air." He draws us into this principle of the Lord's care and the Lord's control, and by giving us these examples, he he, he brings us into he brings us into this truth of how we can overcome anxiety and worry. Our scripture today is not about anxiety and worry, but as you heard Gary, as he read the scripture right off the bat, you hear the call, don't you? Therefore, be patient. Over five times in this little section, we have this idea of patience, be patient. And the question we should ask ourselves is, uh, how do we do that? You know, if you're somebody who needs patience, which is probably all of us, as you sit in the chair under God's word, what do you do? Do you close your eyes and just grip your fists and say, okay, patience, come out? Do you just have a mantra that that we're to quote over and over again? Okay, Lewis, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. It's difficult, (laughs) it doesn't work that well. Verse eight gives us a little more, but you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. How do you do that? Maybe go for a jog, get that cardio in, or maybe get a high in intense interval workout. That's not what the biblical writer is talking about. As the biblical writer is telling us, as James is telling us to strengthen our hearts. It's not just this emotion like, hey, get your emotions under control, but it's the whole being, the whole essence of who we are. Be patient, be patient by strengthening your heart. And We should begin to ask the question, how in the world do I do that? I think this is an easy question and answer. Is there a need for patience? Do you have a need for patience? We met and prayed for marriages this morning and patience is a key to a godly marriage. Patience is a key to raising children. Patience is a key to working Patience is a key to being a neighbor. Patience is a key to being a church member. Patience is key to living in this world as Christians. And as James is is calling us to be patient, I I think he's got this big picture, big idea in mind of, of Christians living in this world. In fact, I think one of the things that James is doing is that he's contrasting a life of patience with our study last week when we talked about the rich man. Think about it. As we looked last week at at the rich man and the traps and the temptations of the rich man, how many of these were a result of get it while you can live life here. Do whatever it takes to get to the top. It's the opposite of patience, isn't it? Even to the point of last week where we saw that That even to the point of that during this day and time, there were there were men who were so concerned about their wealth and so concerned about gaining that their laborers died. Look at the folly again. Notice the contrast between last week and this week. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. You're getting it now. But you're not seeing what's coming upon you, verse three, your gold and your silver have rusted and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh. It is the last days. Is it it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure? Verse five, you've lived luxuriously on this earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your heart. In the day of slaughter. You haven't strengthened your heart, you fattened your heart. There's a contrast here. And as James is writing this to his audience, one of the things that I told you last week that I I believe that his audience was, was built up of mainly people who did not have, who were not rich. And part of last week's message was, was, was to kind of cut the legs out from under any temptation for the poor and the wanting to, to look at a life of rich and to have that temptation to, for your heart to be set on that idol. But, but there's also more here. We know that already in the early church that there were trials and there were temptations and there was persecution that was beginning to happen. And we see that throughout this letter in in chapter one, verse nine. James tells them to rejoice in their humble circumstance. In chapter two, James is speaking to his audience and he's speaking again against partiality and he says, isn't it the rich that drag you into court? Given us the idea that these very people, these Christians, were maybe beginning to be persecuted, were beginning to be marginalized in society. And then last week in verse four. As he talked about the laborers. Who were being treated unfairly. I think it's likely. That many of those laborers were the audience to whom James was writing. The contrast. The point is this, is that believers, us and the believers to whom this was originally written, were not living in a world in which life was just easy, where everything always worked out. That as believers, where we live in a world where there is sin, where there is disruption, where there is chaos, that there's a great need for us. To be patient. You know, we may not be experience the kind of persecution that was happening in the early church. But it isn't easy being a Christian in this world, is it? I mean, if you declare that you're a Christian, if you declare Christian values. The world is looking at us and the world is canceling us and the world is trying to push us aside and to treat us as if we're uh, not intelligent. Squeezing us. And the question begin that we need to begin to ask is. What is our natural temptation when we face hardships, persecutions, temptations? And trials. What's your natural inclination? Most of us, the natural inclination that takes over is that we want to fight. Some of us want to run. Some of us freeze. I think these are our natural inclinations. And the Bible is calling us James is calling us as Christians who are supposed to be salt and light in this world where there will be trouble. To patiently live out your faith. To patiently live out your faith. It's interesting, this text pits two ideas against one another, look in verse eight and nine. You to be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren. If you were to look in Greek, that word for strengthen your heart and that word for complain, look almost identical. Which means that when you were to hear this in Greek, it's almost this play on words. And so it really seems like James is pitting these two things against one another like, hey, you have a response when when trials, temptations, hardships, difficulties, they're going to come. Are you going to strengthen your heart and be patient or are you going to grumble and complain? It's interesting. How much of this book hinges on a section of chapter three? And and I just want you to hear it again. Chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There is disorder in every evil thing. Can't you hear flowing right out of, if you are following that kind of wisdom, can't you hear flowing right out of that a heart that complains? It flows right out of that. And conversely, verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What you hear is if you are following the path of wisdom from God. What naturally flows out of that? Patience. Peace. How difficult would it be this morning for me to provoke you to grumbling? There are only two pots of coffee out this morning. The kids were so difficult getting ready. Can you believe what they said to me? Yesterday... Uh, Josh and Tracy got to run a race that I've gotten to run a couple of times. I didn't run it with them, but it's a it's a long race and it's up a mountain. Then you turn around and you come back down, and it gets hard. It gets challenging. It gets difficult. And in the middle of that, uh, uh, maybe not Josh and Tracy, but in the middle of that, I'm asking myself, "What am I doing?" And my heart starts to grumble. And so one of the things that one of the ways to help endure. One of the ways that I have always used to help strengthen me is to, you know, once you get to a certain part and it starts to get hard, you start to think, okay, I only got X more miles. And I start to think about the finish line and the food and all the fun. And so you may ask yourself, all right, Lewis, that's a way to endure. That's a way to, 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 to develop patience inside of yourself. And our text tells us that there is an end to having to be patient did you catch it therefore be patient brethren until the coming of the lord until the coming of the lord and some of you are saying if i have to be patient that long maranatha lord come quick The point here again. Is that in this world, you will have troubles, you will have difficulties, you will have hardships. And so when you're in this world, as you're in this world, until the Lord comes or until you go to be with him upon death, then what's going to happen is that there is going to be troubles and you will need patience. The other thing that's here that we don't want to miss. Is that one of the keys, the realities. For a believer that draws in us the ability to have patience is the truth that the Lord will return. That there is another day. When we looked at First Peter years ago. One of the things we heard over and over again is that Peter, as he is calling the church to suffer well, he grounds that over and over again in the reality that this world is not your home. Look beyond it. You're an alien. You are a sojourner in this world. And. But. This is not all. James gives us more help. James gives us a nice little three-point sermon here. He gives us three examples, three heroes, if you will, to look to. To help with this idea of how do I develop patience? How is it that I strengthen my heart? Let's look at the first one, which is in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brother, until the coming of the Lord, the farmer... The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now, notice uh, this is not hobby farming. Hobby farming is great, nothing against hobby farming. But notice the words here, it says. Precious produce of the soil. Farming was a way of sustaining life. I think the idea here is this farmer, his substance, if he's going to feed his family. It's going to mean that there's crops coming out of the ground, and if that doesn't happen, he's in major, major trouble. So we're not we've got to get the idea of publics and those sort of things out of our head. Consider the farmer. As we look at this, and as we consider the farmer, what James is calling us to is to have patience knowing that there are fruits coming. There are fruits coming. I mean, think about the farmer. He plants, he waters, he prepares the soil. He doesn't, there's no way to see what's going on under the soil, but he has patience. He's trusting that there's going to be produce. Even when the vine comes out of the ground. There's still patience. It doesn't bloom right away. And as Christians, we're supposed to look at this as an example. And the example, the way that we are to strengthen our hearts. Is that we are to look and we are to know that God has a plan, and that plan will come to fruition. It will happen. And I think, brothers and sisters, we can even look around in our day and age, and and we know that from the Bible times until now that we've known that we are in the last days and we see signs and we see things happening that we know that the end is closer than it was before. That we can maybe even look and say, yeah, I see some vines. But we are to strengthen our hearts when we see these things and we are to know that the Lord is at work and his promises are sure. His plan will come to pass. And this is to produce in us the reality that God is in control of all things. It's to produce in us patience as we work, as we live as we are salt and light in this society that we feel like so many times is against us. Secondly, in verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Suffering and patience. What was the job of the prophet? The prophet heard from the Lord in the Old Testament. The prophet of the Old Testament heard a word from the Lord. And that prophet spoke and did things that most of the time were countercultural. I mean, sometimes God would tell the prophets to do things that we would just say are very outlandish. To give an example to, to Judah or Israel about what's going to happen to them. Other times, the prophets just came in with the word from the Lord and they spoke it to a country and to a people who oftentimes chastised them and rebuffed them and did not want to hear what they had to say. And so when we read as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, This is a very fitting example for us to look to as a hero of somebody who heard from the Lord spoke into culture and was left waiting for the Lord to do what he said he was going to do. What about us? Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters? that God has given us his word. And as God has given us his word, one of the things that we see is that if we go to the Old Testament. And as we read the prophets, we see that it happened, it came true, God's word is true. And then as we look in the New Testament. And as this passage is dripping with the idea of the coming of the Lord, One of the things that we see and that we know is that God's promises will come to fruition. And we have enough here to know that God will win. Christ will return. The end is sure. God has spoken. And we, like the prophets of old, look into this word and depend upon it. And we speak and we act out of it. Strengthen your hearts, brothers and sisters. You have a word from the Lord. And it's written. You can meditate on it. You can read. Oh, that we would spend our lives gaining strength from this book that we've been given. The third example we find in verse 11 that we are to look to. We count those blessed who endured. That word blessing there is the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. And if you've been with us in our study of James, you know that uh, over and over again we see these parallels of James and the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And it's just dripping, the pages of James are just dripping with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so when we hear this, this is the same word of blessed. We count those who are blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job suffered real loss. Job suffered real heartache. Job suffered real temptation. There was a process, but I want you to hear the words of Job. Job answered the Lord and said. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared which I do not understand things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the trouble, we see Job, that Job saw God. And when he saw God, he saw the character of God, that God is full of compassion. He's full of mercy. He is sovereign. He is good. When we see God for who He is, we can rest. We can be patient. It strengthens our heart because it's not in our own strength, but it's in the strength that the Lord provides. And He's good. Even in the midst of trouble and hardship and temptation, God is good and He is merciful. I said there was a nice little three-point sermon, but I think there's maybe one more. Verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold or look. The judge is standing right at the door. That complaining, not being patient. Belly aching. Against one another. Is not what a Christian should do, and James says, behold, don't do this. This is the negative. Don't do this. Behold, the judge is at the door. So I want to ask for a moment what happens when we look at the judge? The judge, this judge, knows all. He doesn't need a witness stand where you are up there and you're um, swearing something under oath. He knows it all. And so when we think about the reality that the judge is standing at the door... The reality that is there is that we stand condemned. If. If you don't see this judge for who he is. See, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer here this morning, one of the things that you know is that it's this same judge who knows all these things, who knows your struggles. It's this same judge that made a way to pay for the penalty of your sins. It's the same judge that sent his son to die for the precious blood of Jesus to cover your sins. And so in some ways, as Christians, when we are given to grumbling against one another and we behold that the judge is at the door, it should draw us into this reality. I am a sinner. And that I can't do this on my own. I can't change this heart on my own. But God, you have made a way. Your son and his death, burial and resurrection have changed everything. And as a Christian. As a Christian. That paves the way. That paves the way for me to live a life of patience. Because I'm not doing it alone. if you're not a believer this morning, I would like for you to consider this judge. And maybe you're here this morning and the idea of of this judge, of knowing everything about you is frightening and terrifying. Maybe there's this, maybe I think all Christians live with some sense of existential fear of what's going to happen when I die. Who am I? I, I? It's hard to be patient. It's hard to be peaceful. And I want you to hear this morning that if you would just trust His Son, God would give Himself to you. And this judge could be your friend and your Savior, your Father. See, there's no real room. When we think about what God has done for us, there's no real room for grumbling in our lives, is there? We look at the story of the Old Testament of the Israelites who had been brought out of Egypt, who'd been saved, who went through the Red Sea. And it's the same word, isn't it? They get into the wilderness and what do they do? They grumble. What about us? How do we face troubles? Where is it that we look? When hardships and trials come? I think I've told this story before, but it's really fitting. My grandfather, my mom's father, was a wonderful Christian man. And towards the end of his life, he had dementia. And uh, my father and I were taking him to, a, to see a doctor up in Nashville. And uh, he kept saying, oh, look at all them trees. And I said, Papa, what are you talking about? Oh, one strong wind and those trees could just destroy this car just like that. Whole way up to Nashville. And then I thought back, it started to make sense. Before he left his house in Illinois, he had all the trees in his front yard cut down. He had grown up in Oklahoma where there were tornadoes. And as he got older in life, he got fearful. And every time he looked at those trees, I'm sure as he sat on that front porch, as he was apt to do, he'd sat on that front porch and be like, Oh, look at that tree. Don't we do this? Don't we look at the things in this life that we think could hurt us and injure us? And obsess over that instead of looking to God, instead of looking to His Word, instead of looking to His promises, and leaning on those things? Notice, James doesn't tell us Look at your bank account. You're going to be okay. Look at your status. Teenagers. Look at your girlfriends. Your boyfriends. Your grades. Look at your job. Look at your spouse. Look at your kids. All these things will fail you. James doesn't call us to look at those things. He calls us to look at the things that are eternal. God, His Word, His promises. Where will you look this morning? Can you take this text in your life and apply it to yourself and strengthen your heart and grow in patience? And I just want to say, as someone who fails at this many, many, many times and far too often, that I'm thankful for the grace of God that continually reminds me, through His Word, to look to Him, to look to His Word, and to trust in His promises. And I'm faithful for men and women, like my spouse Casey and the elders of this church, that when they hear me getting impatient, remind me over and over and over again, look to God, look to his word, look to his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're sovereign. You're compassionate. You're merciful, even in the midst of hard times. Patience isn't just for the times where the seas are calm. But God, because of you, because of what you've given us. We can be patient in the middle of life storms and therefore show your grace and your strength and your power to those around us. God, help us to be those kinds of people. It's in your son's name through which all this is possible, Jesus. Amen.